Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which hits rewind and occasionally fast forward on some of the music and bands that we've loved. I'm Sarah Kemp and this, my co-host, is Rick Martin. Hiya Rick, how you doing? Yeah, good thanks. We're kind of getting back into the swing of this whole podcasting thing now, aren't we? Yeah, we, I don't even feel like I need a script for the intro anymore. Three episodes down. Uh, we're already getting kind of a good reaction to some of the uh, early episodes we put out, right? Particularly the Tom Clark interview, Tom of the Enemy from episode one. What, what have people been saying? Yeah, we've had some good feedback on Twitter, actually. We've had Amy Langham, who is Brown Brummy, said that the Tom Clark episode was good for whilst pottering around doing jobs, which is exactly what we want, isn't it? That's, you know, that's what you do when you listen to podcasts. And Locker Loop said it was a really good listen. Yes, it's been really good to to hear from you guys about what you think about the podcast. You know, any feedback we get, we want to make it better for you, so keep it coming. We're doing something a bit different this week, aren't we? Rick, do you want to explain who we'll be hearing an interview from later in the episode? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what we are doing different is that normally the bands we get on or some of the artists, it's usually someone that we've interviewed before. Or it might be an interview from the archive or someone that we've kind of got a connection to. Um, th- not not the case with this week, actually. We're going to speak to the Oriels, who are, I'm not going to call a new band, maybe more you'd call a current band. You know, they've been around about five, six years. And I guess the reason probably I've, I don't know them is they kind of emerged after I'd left Enemy. So, yeah, kind of, a, I guess, a new band to the show. If you've not heard them, they're a three-piece indie rock band from Halifax, uh, signed kind of the legendary indie label Heavenly Records, who it's the debut album Silver Dollar Moment in 2018, but really came onto my radar with their Disco Volador second album. Actually, we've got all three of them on the line a little bit later in the show. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your amazing campaign idea, Bunga Banda Bob. So yeah, it's, it's got a name now, right? <laughs> it has got a name. Well, yeah, you know, Rick's been talking about how he wants to, to help the music industry. We're all going through a bit of a weird time at the moment. And, you know, the music industry is suffering massively as a result. Um, but Rick, do you want to talk about A, where the names come from and B, what's it all about? Yeah, so I, th- I guess the idea came before the name. Um, and it's something I've mentioned on a couple of our previous episodes I'm quite passionate about, that this is a really tough time for, for bands, particularly emerging artists or artists on small labels and not have been able to tour. Um, you know, maybe they're still getting more streams on Spotify than they ever have, but you know that you only get about 0.005p a stream. So this is really a campaign to say, you know, let's support the bands that we love through their through their toughest times. I know there are other worthy charities to be sort of supporting at the moment, you know, things like Fair Share. But if you've already donated a fiver to Fair Share, why not support uh, a band you love to kind of carry on playing music? And where, where does Bunga Band of Bob come from? Well, I do love a bit of alliteration. Um, and I don't know if you remember, and, you know, the whole Brexit, you know, as the, when Brexit was kind of sealed in January the 31st earlier this year. It feels a lifetime away now. But um, Boris at the time had this campaign of um, Bunga Bob for bongs because he wanted to pay for repairs. He wanted everyone to put their hand in the pocket to pay for repairs to Big Ben uh, so that the bongs could go off um, when Britain left the EU because it's currently, obviously, if you've ever been to London in the last couple of years, it's kind of under construction. So, yeah, I've kind of... It's a bit of a nod to that, I guess, a bit of a, a, bit of a cheeky reference to... Uh, Boris's Big Ben campaign but with a serious message behind it. Amazing yeah and just going back to your point about the you know musicians not making a much making much money actually this week uh, in the news I'd seen that Nadine Shah you know do you know who Nadine Shah? 
Yes, she's a very well-known name, yeah. Yeah, she's been campaigning. She's been talk, talking to her in a government inquiry about uh, music streaming, um, that despite her successes, she isn't able to pay her rent, which is just bizarre, isn't it? You know, she's in a position, she said, with a substantial profile, a substantial fan base, she's critically acclaimed, but she doesn't make enough money from streaming. And she's now in a position where she's struggling to pay her rent. So as a result, the DCMS committee is looking into how the streaming model has affected artists and recording labels. And hopefully this is going to start uh, a new wave of something, something good that can be happen, you know, can happen because a lot of revenue is being lost from live touring. So, you know, something needs to change in this industry. So I think it's a great time to be talking about this. I did actually see this in the news, yeah, because Guy Garvey from Elbow and um, I think it was Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. It was one of the guys from Radiohead. Ed, it was Ed O'Brien. It was Ed O'Brien from Radiohead. Yeah, they actually did go to Parliament to this, you know, this, yeah. this select committee to, to make this point. And I think it's something we've all been kind of broadly aware of. We're all addicted to Spotify, or if you don't use Spotify, you probably use Tidal or one of the other services. This idea that, you know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to listen to an album, even if you had it on iTunes, you'd probably need to buy it and add it to your catalogue. Now you've got almost the world's entire discography sat in your pocket in your phone, right? Where, but Which is great for us as consumers, but as artists, you know, you do hear that they make something, and I, and I wasn't joking earlier, something like 0.005p per stream. And I think Guy Garvey was making the point, you know, he, he was comparing the streaming sites to kind of like cartels and gangsters. You've got to be involved with these sites to get your music out there, but you don't make any money from it. Yeah, it's generally the tech world, right? Uh, some of these tech giants aren't as nice as you think they are. And yet, like you say, they it's addictive and they've got us because, you know, I use Spotify and that's my main platform for listening and finding music these days. So, um, you know, you, people don't go into record stores as much anymore, do they? And I think, you know, what, what this has um, kind of highlighted to me, you know, particularly this this government case that's been happening this week is, you know, I guess when we were originally talking about Bunga Band a Bob, and I'm going to keep saying that, even though it's, it's a bit of a tongue twister, is, you know, about virtual gigs. And, you know, I found a kind of handful of, of virtual gigs. Oriels are playing one, and, you know, I announced a few on, on the last episode, and I've got a few to add to that list. But in reality, you know, there are other ways that you can support artists. And I think maybe if it comes down to, at the moment, streaming an album on, you know, if you're streaming an album on Spotify, why not buy a bit of merch? You know, what's going to help someone like Nadine Shah is probably buying a T-shirt or buying a vinyl record. And maybe that maybe that's the direction we should be taking this campaign in. It's just thinking, what practically can you, can you do? What can you buy that, that ultimately is going to really help that artist out as opposed to streaming a song that will give them, you know, a fifth of a penny or whatever? 100%. I don't even see that streaming... I don't even think about streaming as in I'm actually helping to pay for the artist. So you're right. And I love a bit of merch. So bands, artists, musicians, everyone, create some merch and we'll all buy it. And you started a bit of a gig guide last time. So you've got a couple more to add, haven't you? Yeah. So last time I mentioned Oriels are playing on the 5th at Hebden, Braid, Hebden Bridge Trades Club. That's a mouthful. Uh, the same day Liam Gallagher's doing his uh, Down by the River gig. Uh, I'm really testing my memory here. Courtney Barnett was playing in Melbourne. We'll put all the links in, in the description of the episode. But uh, yeah, a couple more to add. Blossoms are doing a Melody VR gig. There's a lot of these kind of Melody virtual reality gigs. I haven't attended one yet. I'm interested to see what they look like this Thursday, the 3rd of December. And then Gorillaz Song Machine live on December the 13th. And I think as I made reference to before, you know, I'm not, I'm not for a second saying that 
these are struggling artists. You know, Blossoms have had multiple number one albums and, you know, Gorillas are a, are a global phenomenon. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm not saying this is your best way to support struggling artists. At the same time, I've not seen anywhere that's collected all these virtual gigs together. So good to kind of let listeners know what's going on and we'll put all the links to the gigs in the description to this episode. Brilliant. Thanks, Rick. Love that. Let's now talk about the Orioles. You, you know, you interviewed, as you said, the three of them. It's something you really were passionate, you know, a band that you're really passionate about getting on the show, weren't you? So why were you so desperate to get them on the show? Yeah, and I guess I've kind of referenced a couple of things related to this on recent episodes that, you know, during the gap between our last series and this, the music press has collapsed even further on itself. So, you know, Enemy is now online clickbait, as your pal from the Paddington said. So there's not that weekly magazine of 50 pages with reviews and interviews queue sadly closed I know a few of my old enemy colleagues were working there at the time so I was really quite sad when uh when when queue closed uh, a couple of months back and I think you know the upshot of this you can't read about the bands you love in in the way that you used to be able to there's nowhere now that does four page features on kind of bands like the Orioles so truthfully I really got into the Disco Volador album during lockdown and I'll come into some of the reasons why you know a little bit later on but I then was like, well, I want to read about this. I want to understand what this, these complicated lyrics and some of the ambiguity is about. And I couldn't find it. So what do you do in that situation? You go to source and you kind of um, ask them yourselves, right? And I think the other thing about it, it's, it's just one of those albums that, that's really struck me. Um, you know, sometimes this probably only happens once a year or once every couple of years where something comes out of nowhere and you, you kind of get obsessed with it quite quickly this is this is deeper than just oh this is a good album this is something that I've really loved and it's probably it probably came to me at the right time in terms of lockdown I've maybe fallen out of love with music a little bit um, because it didn't feel important when there was a virus spreading and you know some people I think retreat into music in those situations I think for me I found it hard to focus on music and then this came along and, and it kind of re sort of it reawoken me I think pulled you out didn't it well I think that's really good and and also what I love about that is when you said if you if you can't find it go straight to the source well you're lucky you've got a platform to be able to do that aren't you and hopefully you know Oriel's fans um, and people who might not know Oriel's are going to listen to this and and be able to you know you'll be able to spread spread the love I guess won't you but why do you think it is that the album because you love listening to albums. We've talked about this before. I'm very much a kind of song person. You you will get an album and you will listen from start to finish multiple times. But why do you think that the album is connected on such a deep level? Like you just said, you weren't having a great time during lockdown. Um, and I was quite surprised that you, as a music lover, kind of switched off from music, actually. And, and we'd had this conversation quite a few times over lockdown. And I was kind of thinking, gosh, is Rick OK? <laughs> you know, that, hmm. it's not like him at all. Like, you know, I've known you for a few years and and it was quite surprising. But what was it about this album that 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 helped? I think it's interesting you say that about, you know, how I was feeling about music overall. I'll come on to why I like the album in a second. But I think what it is, I'm not one of those people for which music is just kind of in the background or it's music. Like in a weird sort of way, I was saying to someone the other day, I can't, I struggle to do, to work with music on in the background because if I have music on in the background, my mind's going to wander more to that than it is the spreadsheet that I happen to be filling out at that time, right? So I don't tend to listen to music unless I'm in a place where I can focus on it. You know, I'm the sort of person who likes to listen to music when like running and walking and that's because your brain doesn't need to compute how to run and walk. So it focuses on the other thing, as in the music that you're listening to. And I think, um, you know, early in lockdown, 
my mind couldn't focus on listening to music. I couldn't even really listen to sort of podcasts or things like that. But um, yeah, the Orioles, as I said, are a band that I've been aware of for a while. A good mate of mine from uh, from university. This is going to sound like one of the stories you tend to tell on air, where like I moved into a student house first year of uni, and um, I moved in next to a guy called Rich, who I think we were put in rooms next to each other because of our names were almost identical. So he's Rich Morrison, I'm Rick Martin. And it's one of those where he was playing music in his room, I was playing music in my room and realised we had kind of a shared taste. We've got very different tastes in lots of ways, but a shared taste in another. And every few months he might message me with, oh, have you heard this band? Have you heard this? Have you heard that? And invariably we all, were always both kind of into it. And this is one of the bands he was like, oh, you know, have you, are you aware that Oriel's uh, are back with another album? And I, when I actually then went to listen to it, something clicked kind of immediately. There was just something very emotive about it and we talk I talk about this in the interview where some of it's very abstract and it's about space and sort of alternate dimensions and stuff some of it's quite personal and quite emotional I think and I, I distinctly remember when I first listened to this going for quite a long walk in kind of rural Kent near where I live and it was about 25 degrees I was going through kind of this field and I thought this song just perfectly fits the state that I'm in and actually I can focus on this again and then every time I went for a walk down there I had to put that album on it was almost like a trigger and now I can't listen to it without thinking about that time which is not the sort of thing I normally talk about on this show right I'm normally quite factual and sort of stats based right and it's normally you that talks about the emotion of music but this is something that really did strike me quite deeply you're becoming emotional Rick I knew I'd get it out of you at some point I guess on that point um you know, are there any albums that, that have done that for you where, you know, it's it's really either pulled you out of a certain state of mind or or it's got a real kind of sense of place about it? Yeah, I think pulling out of a state of mind, I don't I don't know, but when I hear particular albums, um, it will take me back massively. So I was thinking about this, zero seven simple things. So this just reminds me of my mum. And, and I'm literally transported back into my mum's Corsa, Vauxhall Corsa, the red Corsa, driving around Nottingham in the summer. Um, yeah, it's weird how that kind of takes me back. And she used to play that album all the time. Um, one that I've spoken about before, this one is a weird kind of, a great one, but also kind of a sad one because it was at a time in my life where everything was literally happened at the same time. And it's a song by Jungle called Accelerate. And I remember we were landing on the runway in Melbourne. I'd just kind of left London at age 26, um, left my whole life behind for a new for a new journey. And I was kind of really lost to, and struggling to find a place in life at the moment, if I'm honest. And the lyrics, because everything just happened at once, coincided with landing on that runway. And I'll never forget that. And another one I just want to mention is is a bit a bit different, Chemical Brothers, um, and a particular song, Believe. So Kelly from Block Party was uh, was feature, featured on that track, and that just takes me back to my friend's living room when I was at college, age seventeen, um, having loads of fun, basically. But yeah, and oh, oh, actually, one more I wanted to mention was uh, Athlete. This might be a bit of a, a strange one. Um, that reminds me of my stepdad and he used to drive me to college and we used to go past Rock City and I remember we ended up buying a, a couple of tickets to the gig and we went along and it was, it was a really good kind of bonding exercise with him at the time so there are you know music is one of those things isn't it it's is very emotive um, and I'm glad it's I'm glad I've got that out of you Rick it's a good conversation to have. I, I guess but, I, I would I would love to know the science behind why this is you know we, we both probably have listened to millions of songs throughout our lives right but there's probably 
a very small percentage of that that has a real strong sense of place or that we can remember the first time we heard it right i'd love to get like a a musicologist on or something that can explain what's actually going on because i frankly don't know myself oh you know i love all this kind of stuff we've been talking about things like this before haven't we and getting some kind of music and music and neuroscientists on and things like that so um watch this space we might end up doing something like that in the future but going back to the interview because uh, because as you said you know earlier on we we normally on this podcast interview bands either that we know or we've met before um how was it were interviewing a, a, a new band that you've never spoken before did it remind you of, of working at the enemy all those years ago yeah I think that was the thing that struck me most actually and one of the things maybe that you know my career has moved on massively from from those days I don't work in the music industry by day but you know, I guess we all sometimes get those flashbacks of things we did in the past that we wish maybe partly that we were still working on. And yeah, that was what I think was quite exciting about last night. So literally the team's call flicked on. I'd never spoken to these people before other than a couple of emails. And, and it adds a different dynamic to an interview. If it's someone you know, you know, we, we've been quite open on this podcast that, you know, when you interviewed Dave from Blurry, someone that you'd met before, you'd, you'd known years ago or the Paddingtons, you you know, a lot of what you talked about was shared experiences of being a um you know at squat parties and, and raves and gigs and stuff and with me with Tom from the enemy I, the first interview I did for the cover of enemy was with the enemy so you've already got that kind of shared experience and things that you've done before was when it's a brand new band yeah you're kind of feeling your way throughout the interview you're sort of um uh figuring out how best to to kind of find out the things that you want to find out right and it's it's a little bit more exciting because you really don't know what direction it's going to go in so obviously we, we've talked up to this point about how, you know, I'm a big fan of the Orioles. They're a band that you were aware of, but probably didn't know a lot about. But I guess your access point for them is you're a big Peggy Goo fan and they've covered one of her tracks. Do you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Because actually I wasn't aware of this. Yeah, well, I, I don't think Peggy Goo is your sort of thing, is it? Um, Peggy Goo is a Korean DJ. She's also got a fashion line. She's just like the most beautiful. I basically want to be her. She's got the, the most amazing taste. Like, you know, I follow her on Instagram and look at her Berlin apartment. She's just so effortlessly cool and annoying, but amazing at the same time. Um, and she, yeah, she's kind of full-time DJ. And a lot of her influences, uh, you know, funk and disco classics, and it makes you forget is actually my favourite Peggy Goo tune. So when you told me that the Orioles had... Uh, covered this I was really intrigued to hear what it was like I like music that kind of gets me going and I do think that the this cover they've absolutely smashed it out of the park um, and it is very aligned to the kind of music they do as well so I absolutely loved it and I, I'm hoping that they do more of this sort of stuff and hoping they do kind of go down more of the route of the dance and funk and disco stuff because I think it really suits their style and actually, you know, when when you listen to their debut album and then Disco Volador, that's definitely the direction they've gone in. They were not they were not those disco and funk and samba influences that came in on Disco Volador. And I think I don't want to give too much away of the interview. I think that's definitely the direction they're going in. So you know, who knows? Album three, you might be a super fan like me, right? Yeah, you never know. But it sort of reminds me a bit of uh, Friendly Fires sort of thing. If they went, you know, more that direction and and upbeat, I'd definitely be a more of a super fan. Yeah. Well, we've done enough talking for now. Uh, I think we should set up the interview. Do you want to explain, you know, how it all went? Yeah, so like as I mentioned, all three of them were on, on the line, which is a challenge, because then you've kind of got to uh, interview all three at, uh, at once. It's, it's not impossible. But um, yeah, it seemed to be in like their practice sort of space, or if not, it was, it was like quite a 
like quite a cozy little space that they were in and their cat Mizo, who if you're a Oriel fan, you'll probably know they've got a song on the album, Disco Volador, called um, Memoirs of Mizo, and I didn't know it was about a cat, so I learned that. And yeah, the cat did interrupt the interview a couple of times to the point where at one point it knocked a load of stuff off the table. And they were like quite in, they were sort of getting to quite a deep part of the chat, and then it completely kind of um, derailed it. I it derailed love it, this yeah. story. Like, you've not kept it in the interview, I, and so I haven't heard it, but this just sounds, you said it's not as funny as it sounded. I can imagine if it's a deep chat, then it's not funny, but I cracked up, and like, it's so typical of a cat to do that, isn't it? It's like, nah, I want the attention. <laughs> Please yeah. don't focus on me. It's almost like they can hear you. Oh, and, and I was going to say on the hearing point, you can actually hear the cat meowing at points in the interview. So <laughs> I do, do, do listen out for that. But yeah, I guess let's get them on the line. So it's all three of the RELs. It's uh, Henry, Esme and Sid, plus their cat Mizo. So here we go. And I was just saying off air, actually, to, to the guys in the band, that it's very rare we'd interview kind of three people at once so I thought maybe what we'd do is kind of an intro is you can just introduce who is who so the listeners will know whose voices they're hearing. Yeah um, I'm Esme, vocals and bass for the Orioles. Uh, I'm Henry, I play guitar. And I'm Sidoni, drummer. Hi guys and yeah I guess we're recording tonight on the same day lockdown, are we on lockdown three now as um, has come in. I'm not sure what, what tier you've been put in in the north i think everyone in the north you're in tier three yeah we're being punished for um andy burnham speaking up for us yeah <laughs> basically he's an absolute hero though andy burnham isn't he yeah, no man. he is yeah we, yeah. we love him you love andy burnham yeah, I, I kind of feel your pain because i live in kent and kent's the only place in the south i think that's been put in tier three okay. as well so yeah strange times but i guess i'm interested to know you know, from the point of view of being in a band, you know, how have you found the lockdown period? You know, is it has it been has it been difficult, or actually on the flip side, has it been a time that you can be more creative? I guess I'm interested to hear how you how you found it. Yeah, it was kind of took a while to get locked into kind of any like idea of like productivity or like yeah schedule of like stuff to do. Uh, I think like through summer. Yeah, it basically took a while to set into this idea that we like still needed to do things behind the scenes and stuff just because everyone was in this like really shit position and obviously struggling to find ways to get out of it. But I think towards the latter half of like the initial lockdown, we all started getting together a little bit more and writing loads of music and I've actually been working on loads of projects that like, yeah, will be coming out next year. So it's been quite productive towards yeah. the end the second the second half uh was a lot better the the first was kind of it was quite devastating i guess it was the same for everyone really but having just had an album out i think just for a month before the whole country went into lockdown kind of meant that as soon as lockdown started that album was finished with in a sense mm, mm. so uh we kind of got, it's, it's very easy to get bogged down with like what we should have been doing with that, with Disco Volador, but it was quite beneficial in a sense because we, you know, a month after we released this one, we were immediately thinking about like where we wanted to go with the next one. And I think during those first couple of months, we all were separately thinking about what we wanted to do. And then when we got back together, it turns out that we were all kind of have the same idea yeah. despite being in separate households so it's good for that 
reason for sure. And then when we started like working and picking up our productivity, we were in smashing it. But I guess one of the things I'm interested to know is in terms of the live side of things as well. You know, it's been really difficult for bands not to be able to play live. And I know that you've got a virtual gig coming up, which I was going to kind of cover a little bit later on. But, um, you know, on on our podcast particularly, we're kind of we're, we're kind of launching this one. This will sound semi-serious, but our um, Bunga Band Bob campaign, as in support the bands that you love. Uh, you know, and there's different ways of doing that, whether that's buying records or buying gig tickets. But I guess from your point of view, this must have been the longest you've not been able to play live, right? You know, going on for six, seven, eight months. Yeah, definitely. We were kind of a little bit like um, wary or like dubious of the whole doing a live stream gig initially. Um, It's taken us a while to obviously get this one sorted out and stuff, but really, really looking forward to it and looking forward to like also having like watched a few bands do some sessions as well and live gigs like, yeah, just looking forward to get back on it yeah. and playing again. We were actually quite lucky to be invited to play some like socially distant gigs earlier on, uh, just be- mm. in between the lockdowns, which mm. was really fortunate. Um, being the first band to be like the guinea pigs for how socially distant music can work, and like this in the sound check, I just remember feeling so happy hearing like a kick drum. Mm echo around the room it's like does does wonders for for like mental health a bit of normality mm-hmm. and in terms of i guess i do want to talk in depth about the disco volador album which i've not been uh, quiet on social media about the fact i'm a huge fan of it i kind of want to hit rewind on your career a little bit and go back to where you started out and i mean that's probably a fairly obvious question you know sidonia and esme being siblings you know so where did you meet? I mean, probably, I'd imagine when one of you was born, that was when you would have met. But how did the band start start to come together? When was it that you, you formed and, you know, where did you meet Henry, I guess? I was thinking about this actually more through lockdown because we have this version of it in our heads where we met at an um, Irish centre, which was like a, a, like a mutual family friend party when we were all really young. And uh, me and Sid just walked up to Henry and started playing on a piano with him. And me and Sid hadn't really ever played music before then, but somehow the next day a band practice was organised from that. But recollections of it is kind of like I'm quite confused about it all because I still don't really know like where we decided on playing together. But obviously there was some kind of like, without sounding too spiritual about it, some kind of like connection between us all that just we gravitated towards each other and knew we had this musical connection even if you know 10 12 years ago it was a musical connection based on like green day or something like that like it was still there so yeah. we had this we had this misconception for ages that we you know start we played on this piano as like played down at the bottom on the bass notes and sid high up on the treble and me in the middle we kind of like played it was like a foreshadow of our eventual roles in the band but we always thought that it was our parents that kind of organised us to have a practice, which was the next day. Mm. But you were talking to yeah, your mum, and it turns out we we just organised that ourselves, and we did a practice in Sidney's basement in Bell Hall in Halifax, and we wrote a song that first day, and yeah. it kind of worked. So this was um, a long, a long, it must long be time like ago. eleven, at least eleven, 11 years, years ago now. now. Yeah. And I'm always interested in that kind of sibling dynamic. You know, there's obviously some famous bands that have had siblings in, and I'm I'm one of five kids myself, and I can't imagine 
being in a band with any of them you know i've got a couple of musical uh siblings far more musical than me to be fair and we would tear each other's hair out if we were to ever try and form a band so how you know what was were you conscious of that decision when when you decided to form the band that you were obviously therefore going to spend i guess i'm talking more to sid and esme here you know you were going to be subjecting yourselves to spending a lot of time with each other you know on the road and, and recording and stuff I guess, um, yeah, when we first started out, we never even had the vision of like being on the road and recording together in the first place. But then on the flip, like, we have grown up so kind of close together that like, that was never something that was seen as like an issue or something that we were like frightened of or thinking about in the future. It was always something that more excited us than um, made us anxious or whatever. So yeah, we're still like, I mean, yeah. From, I think from like, <laughs> even class, so. young age, we always did everything in like as a pair. Yeah. To be We're definitely more, way more like twins than yeah. me and my <laughs> sister are. It's quite strange at times. Yeah. Um, the the level of synchronicity is insane between <laughs> them. I guess it's it's just happened that way because of how. How close you are. Yeah. Mm. And that's got to help with music, hasn't it? You know, if you've got almost that kind of telepathic understanding whether you're playing live or whether you know you're working on something in the studio, that that must help because you probably instinctively know what the other's thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I mean, especially for so many years of playing in the band, like kind of me and Sid having like a lack of music knowledge. Um obviously like Henry did lessons and stuff and could bring that kind of music theory to the practices. Well, me and Sid only really had to rely on being able to lock into each other and obviously it complements itself well that we were bass and drums because we were kind of only connecting to each other and not being able to bring any like outside knowledge to it so mm. I think to an extent like I'm still kind of in that like realm of just like being able to connect so well to one person playing something. Yeah it is it used to scare me a lot uh, between <laughs> Well, when we were writing, because Sydney's just by like when we we'd be playing like a new idea, and uh, simultaneously they'd change what they were playing together mm. without any prior discussion. But this this always helped with finding you know like part A's and part B's and where the songs can go. And sometimes I remember like there's occasions where you'd, you'd change and it was that good that I had, I had to stop and be like, <laughs> right, let's like rewind in it. Like, yeah. whoa, 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 mm, whoa. Mm. that kind of thing. It really helps with, with writing and, um, and jamming, jamming uh, new ideas out for sure. Then I think about stuff on, you know, on Disco Volador as well, you know, the songs like Seventh Dynamic Goo that have like quite significant time changes at points in the song and I bet if you've got that kind of telepathic understanding then it's probably easier to execute that right? Yeah I guess so yeah it kind of our jamming has always been that kind of way where we fluctuate between time signatures and and keys and stuff like that and like it's very yeah the way in which we write songs is pretty like improvisational I guess isn't it because yeah. we just jam together for ages and then just record the whole session, I guess, or like take snippets from it and then work on that. So and structure it afterwards once we find where the where all the pieces go. But I think Disco Volador is an incredibly rhythmic record for that reason. Um, 
with the way Sid and I play, they'll they'll start to emphasize bits more, like certain notes on, like t- together as one, which mm. makes mm. parts just come out uh, of them like in real time. It's kind of hard <laughs> to explain. Just mm. all like, very like tricky little bits when you zoom in on the the rhythm is is just them hearing something and like doing it as one. Mm. Like the rhythm. Just locking in. It's really hard to yeah. <clears throat> Hold that thought on the music of that album because I do want to go into a little bit more depth on that in a minute. But a couple of other things I wanted to ask us about the formation of the band. I think one, I've never read anywhere where your name came from. Now, I've done a bit of Googling and I've noticed that in Latin or Old French, it means golden. Yeah. Is that where it comes from? Um, there's a bunch of different ones, isn't there? We yeah. got told that by a producer once. Yeah, we got told. It's kind of another one of those things that, like, even within the band ourselves, it's like a bit mythical because, like, I just guess being a band for so many years at such a young age as well, like, you do have like so many different versions of the same story. But I think at the time we um. We just were listening to loads of Northern Soul music and we just wanted a name that was similar to like the Shirelles or mm. the Ronettes, that kind yeah. of thing. And I literally do not know <laughs> how the Orioles came out of that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. We had this <laughs> tune called Gutter Honey, which was like incredibly Northern Soul. So it was around that time, like maybe 2014. Yeah, wow. I remember Gutter Honey. Yeah. Gutter Honey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. One of the lost songs, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We once, yeah. we once, I think after a gig at like three in the morning, we once, with a, there was a guitar in the room where we were staying on tour and we, because I can still remember how to play a lot of the old tunes. We all just sat around and we're like, oh my God, do you remember this one? In like 2012 when we'd play it and sing along. Yeah. It, really, it was mad. Like all the old songs that are just wiped from me. From yeah. Yeah. There's something else I wanted to talk to you about was kind of the influence that your local areas had on you. And I say this, I mean, you, know, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm Northern from mm. Manchester. And uh, there was a period actually probably going back 10 years where I, I quite seriously considered moving to like Hebden Bridge, Mithorn Road, somewhere around there, because I liked, I liked the look of it. I liked the fact it was quite arty, quite cultural. Um, and obviously you're from Halifax and, you know, kind of that, that sort of area. So I guess I'm interested to know because it's such a, a cultural hub or it's become such a cultural hub how, what effect that's had and or is there another side to places like Halifax and, and Hebden that, that maybe people the outsiders like me wouldn't see? Well from what I remember there wasn't really much going on this this whole uh, the the whole like cultural thing I think has come around quite quite, quite recently, recently yeah obviously Hebden Bridge and Mither Moyne and Tomadon have been like that way for a while but Halifax definitely in the last like 10 years become a place with venues and and stuff we uh it was i think there was doghouse and then cookies in town and then that was it yeah 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 when we were when we were starting out and kind of playing local venues and stuff there was we were really limited for like venues to actually play yeah as Henry just said there was like two or three that we could kind of do around do our rounds of so we initially kind of got our inspiration looking outside of Halifax. We used to play a lot in Leeds and Sheffield and kind of found a group of like musicians and creatives there, which we like gravitate towards and kind of learned a lot from. And then, yeah, it was only really in recent years that Halifax kind of got a little pin on the map, so to speak, and like 
it's nowadays has got so much going for it and there's so much mm. good music coming out of the wet like west yorkshire and the valleys and stuff like that like mm. yeah i think in terms of influence uh there wasn't any so it worked to our benefit i mm. think mm. there wasn't any bands or, or a scene where you know we tried to sound like we were kind of completely uninfluenced by yeah. our surroundings which was very freeing I guess. Yeah I was gonna say it kind of like yeah is representative of the fact that <coughs> our music has always been quite like free and diverse in itself because yeah we were never like pinholing ourselves to like one scene or one specific like yeah scene that we were being influenced by so I think it just ended up being quite naturally uh, its own creation. <laughs> but I guess even thinking outside of music, you know, it's it, you said sort of free and diverse there, and that's what I guess again that's what an outsider thinks of places like, you know, Hebden, Halifax, as it's got kind of that old hippie vibe to it. You know, a lot of old hippies moved there in kind of the sixties, and I guess there's a bit of a darker side, you know, on the other side of that that's been in the press around kind of drug addiction and stuff. But I wondered if I just wondered if yeah, that kind of free. I'm not going to say you know you're a hippie band, but that hippie vibe in the town, whether that you know whether that that in some way influenced kind of the way that you sounded. Yeah, maybe. I, I, yeah, I feel like it was maybe that was more noticeable when we first played shows in like London, and we can like realise then when you like suddenly go to London and you have like a different humour, like general kind of vibe to like what we were first being surrounded with. But I wouldn't really say it was too naturally uh sorry too consciously like hippie or free or yeah <laughs> i guess um we've always kind of enjoyed being outsiders in a sense and like looking outside of the norm and outside of what's popular to create stuff so i guess that's pretty hippie <laughs> <laughs> you talked about kind of going down to london then you know you you kind of you eventually burst out of the scene in sort of Yorkshire and started playing in London, then eventually signed to Heavenly Records. So, you know, what was it like signing for a label that's kind of launched the careers of, you know, the Mannix, Dove, St. Etienne, you know, loads of kind of luminaries of the indie world. Was was that what appealed about that label specifically? Because it's obviously an independent label, but it's got that heritage as well. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, we loved, we loved the, the roster. That was definitely what drew us to the label. And then, yeah kind of just all fell into place and like being really influenced by a lot of the older stuff that they put out like especially saying Etienne and that kind of thing like yeah it was just kind of really nice to know that they were into what we were doing as well yeah and then yeah. all just kind of fell into place I think as well just like going to like Liverpool Sound City and stuff and seeing kind of local bands like Hoot and Tennis Club and it, mm. even they seemed like you know a dramatic step above us and like they just seemed like something we kind of idolised at the time and yeah. them being on Heavenly, obviously, we wanted to like follow in their footsteps. It was interesting you mentioned Hooten because for me it was, I didn't really know the history of Heavenly. I, I actually um, looked it up on Wikipedia after we signed, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it was all, it, for me it was like Toy and Temples and, and Hooten yeah. Tennis Club were, like the current, mm. they seem to be like doing the most exciting stuff and I, mm. I remember when we were on Art is Hard uh, and you were like in a practice in the, in Illingworth, oh, yeah. you were like, heavenly is the next logical step. And I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> so it was always like this big aspiration. Yeah. 
you know, we're going back quite a few years now in terms of when you signed that deal, you know, and you're pretty, you're pretty seasoned band now. And I guess if you were to rewind back to then, you know, you were quite young when all that happened. I've seen interviews where you've kind of, you don't like necessarily talking about kind of the experience of that happening when you were quite young. But I guess from my point of view, you know, I started in the music press when I was 16. So I kind of feel like I've also seen, not from a band point of view, but from on the press side, I guess, what the industry can be like when you come into it at quite, quite a young age. I, I guess I'm interested to know how how you tackled that because, you know, you were all kind of in your late, by my maths, kind of your late teens when when that happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. It's really? one of those things with, with retrospect, you kind of realise how much more it maybe affected you. Um, I think at the time we were just taking everything as it comes and, you know, everything felt like it was running really smoothly and stuff. But then I guess years down the line, like it does feel like quite an unconventional, like uh, adolescence to have had. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose Definitely. that can be quite jarring at times, but it's always been good experiences mostly. So Yeah. I think, when was it? 2017? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where were you? Was still in uni? Yeah, I was in uni. I was in first year or second year of sixth form. I was doing my levels. Yeah, and late teens. The frustrating thing kind of came when we all breaked out of the teens and yet we're still being called a young band when there's, we know of lots of bands younger than us. We kind of got a label and stuck with it year after year, but like the years work, you know, we get, we got older, but the label stuck. Yeah. I mean, you're still quite fresh-faced, and believe me, when you get in your 30s, you, you would appreciate uh, being told that you look young because the, the ageing process definitely sort of starts to uh, to accelerate. I think I think when I first became aware of you, it was probably uh, your first single, Sugar Tastes Like Salt, and you know, when I think about the sound of that, that's so different to what you were doing on Disco Volador. You know, it's it's I call it almost like an indie Led Zeppelin. It's like four songs in one played yeah. at multiple different time signatures, almost like you're trying to fit one career in kind of one song so like what how, how you know where did that come from why why did you why was your debut single seven minutes long with about four songs crammed into one well heavenly wanted us to do that <laughs> heavenly wanted us to put that one out we didn't even yeah. find it at the time did we? and they came and saw us when they wanted to sign us in the leads and they were like that they saw it live and said that must be the the single yeah so they, i mean it was a good decision to be fair yeah I think it's quite pretty apt as well because the way we've always made music is like making eight minute songs that I mean most of the tunes we write like kind of eight minute songs that we're cutting down to (laughs) three minute ones so I guess they probably saw something in that that was like yeah this is the most representative of like what these guys are actually like and it'll work Mm -hmm. well as a day. The the sugar ending thing has always been funny for us because uh, sugar evolves the the only thing that stays the same is the the first three minutes. Mm. Sugar, depending on what music we listen to at the time, you know, we'd like we'd jam ideas out, and they'd always a lot of them would be in E minor, which is the key of sugar. <laughs> so sometimes instead of finishing a song or trying out new genres and putting it in, into the mix, we'd put it on the end of sugar <laughs> to try them out. Um, so Sugar has had many, many endings, but the ones you hear are just the ones we were playing live at the, at time. the time. yeah. So, but in the in Sugar, there's the disco bit, which which for us was us, was us first trying to play around with dancier rhythms and 
looking forward to Disco Volador because we always we've always said that we knew what this album was going to sound like when mm. we first signed to Heavenly, even though we had the first one written. Mm. Yeah, so it's just about experimentation with Sugar really. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, you bring up your can debut album there. You know, Silver Dollar Moment. That you know, listening back to that now, a couple of years down the line, it sounds like you were still kind of finding your sound and finding your feet. I think Henry, I saw an interview where you said. We had a load of influences we wanted to get into our music. We just hadn't quite worked out how to do it yet. So is that now kind of now how you you look back on the album as kind of like a bit of a year zero for the band, a bit of a starting to find your sound, but hadn't really got to that point where you did with with your next record. Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's bits because we all we jam songs in the studio before we started writing them, and there's bits of that record where like breakdowns and little pieces of music where that was us uh, recording with the influences of what we were going for but we had these songs that and this album that we planned on releasing so we found them in like mini little pockets didn't we yeah i think they're all like dotted about like all the songs from silver dollar moment uh, yeah kind of initially recorded in different places and um Obviously, like we redid the whole album in like one studio, but like demoed in different places and at different times. And yeah, they just kind of capture different moods and styles that we were going for at the time. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's kind of why it sounds the way it does, is because we we wrote it over such a long period of time. Yeah. And in terms of those influences, you know, we we've kind of touched on this in other parts of the interview, but you know. If I was going to spend, I could probably spend all night listing all the bands that I think you can hear in your sound, but some of the touch points like, you know, ESG, a certain ratio comes up a lot, the Pastel, Stereo Lab, like how, where, you know, who, is it different people in the band that are into those different styles that then bring them to the table or how, how, how have you melded all those kind of disparate influences? And they're not always the most obvious ones either, they're not the obvious influences that I think, you know, particularly bands of your generation would would kind of cite if you know what I mean yeah um then we just all connect like all separately sorry like listen to a hell of a lot of like different kinds of things and then when we bring them together kind of just like fits and like we manage to find a band that maybe like is a good representation of like what we're listening to so like Stereo Lab for example are obviously a good one to go off because we listen we all listen to them but also like the t- kind of like other bands that draw off stereo lab like w- what we listen to separately if that makes sense so yeah. like stereo lab is kind of a band that collectively we can all say we're influenced by in different ways um yeah i know what i'm trying to say yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Right, i guess right. like with people like the pastels and acr as well because they're two definitely like bigger influences for us mm. they just came with like when I saw the pastels probably one of my earliest memories of like a gig really um and then acr we've always played with we supported jazz from acr and uh, one of our first gigs so ever since then he's been like a big influence on our writing and has like done a lot of pre-production with us and stuff like that so I guess for both of them, it's been the actual like communication with the band. Yeah. Mm, like, mm. yeah, sharing their influences with us and vice versa. And, yeah. yeah. We managed to build up quite like nice uh, relationships with 
people that were influenced by yeah, really looking which is my heart to be which is yeah i'm laughing as i'm saying it cause it's quite crazy like yeah with, with pastels as well yeah and then even like and um, the t as well yeah i was just gonna say Letitia sadie supported us like two years ago like her solo stuff and like just playing our songs that we in our head had written massively influenced by Stereolab but then yeah. just seeing her in the crowd watching us was like what the hell <laughs> it's the same with um, the pastels when we yeah. played their venue in uh, oh yeah true it was there it's just yeah. mad <laughs> yeah and uh, John from <laughs> yeah John uh, Buzzcocks from Buzzcocks. as well was at that gig gave Sid a Buzzcocks record <laughs> yeah it's, yeah it's uh Strange. Yeah, but as Sid was saying, there's like these big bands that are collective and then all these little offshoots that we all kind of like drip through drip through into mm. the, the mix of it all. Yeah. But we all obviously like always sharing and listening to like whatever the members are listening to as well. Mm. Figuring out ways to work towards it. Yeah. Uh- I think that kind of naturally leads me into talking about, I guess, the main purpose of the interview tonight, which is obviously Disco Volador. And uh, I, I, I don't mind admitting I've been obsessed with this album for about six months now. It's one of those where I was aware of you with obviously Sugar Tastes Like Salt, then I saw this had come out. And I thought, this doesn't sound... I can see the progression from Silver Dollar Moment, but this is a band that have just gone... They've gone to the moon, frankly. They've gone kind of a million miles kind of ahead. And I guess I was interested... It's one of those where it's taken a while to make sense, all of it to me. Even now, there's bits I'm listening and I'm still trying to work out what the lyrics are about and I'm going to quiz you on some of that. And you may or may not send me in kind of the right direction. But, you know, did you have a definitive map of where you wanted to go with this album? Yeah, I feel like on reflection, it was maybe a lot more experimental than we thought we were doing at the time. Like, we knew we had the whole, we've always wanted our albums to be fairly themed and fairly like a coherent sort of thread that they follow so I think we had the like uh, sort of cosmic influence as like a general loose theme for this album at the start but with it to me at least with it being so kind of alive the process of the album I I think everything came together with every step that we added to it and still now playing it live I'll add an extra bit or Sid or Henry will and that to me is adding to the themes of the record like it's such a constant evolving process that yeah it's like this coherent theme that runs throughout but it also like never stops building sort of thing and i guess in terms of talking about i always want to divide it into kind of the music and the lyrics almost separately although obviously i think they work as a combination i think you know for me the music is the more immediate thing the lyrics take time i think to make sense if they ever do frankly maybe i'm not bright enough to figure some of it out but you know musically you work with marta salogny um she's a legendary producer in terms of i think the sound you were trying to achieve so you know what was your process in terms of working with her and was she someone that you wanted to work with and then you know managed to kind of get her on board how did all that kind of come about yeah well we wanted to work with her and this album that we were planning and foreseeing, we knew that it worked with Marta's influence even better than the first one did. So it's like a must, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, She's just like so, so easy to work with and definitely just at, like fits really well with like our vibe of being quite experimental and trying out new ideas constantly and like 
she's just really interesting and got very interesting ways of working and very inspiring ways of working as well like I think as a team as a collective like we kind of just bounce off one another really well and yeah it's just constantly a, a good vibe in the studio there's never any like we never question what idea she has and vice versa it's it's always like really inspiring yeah yeah because I think one of the things that really works on it for me is the sequencing like actually the the kind of almost the narrative that you tell throughout and you know the the first track is obviously a first track on an album and you know the the kind of disco volador theme at the end is clearly kind of a final track so what role did she play in you know I imagine you you maybe had some of these songs that might you might have been living with for a while some maybe came together near the studio sessions that tends to be how bands bands work you might work differently but you know was was that where she kind of helped you out a little bit in terms of bringing it into feeling like a whole yeah it was kind of weird i guess like when we were actually in the studio just a lot of weird things were happening and falling into place which i guess made this concept solidify a little bit more in our brains and like like there was the anniversary of was it the anniversary of Moonland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apollo. Whilst we were there and stuff, and there was like a partial lunar eclipse on the first on the night that we were recording. Uh, come down on Jupiter, and uh, there was another big. Oh no! And then we went to go play a show. Um, halfway through the session at Jodrell Bank, so it was like all the space satellites and stuff. So there was all mm. this like I guess we were kind of like just so immersed. Yeah. at the time within all of this like uh thematic yeah. kind of space related stuff yeah and then yeah, yeah the, the all... soundtrack felt pretty nat. Uh, sorry the order felt pretty natural yeah yeah we, um, i remember falling asleep most nights to brian eno's apollo yeah uh, album that was we anniversary talk... as well obviously yeah there's a lot of um well i think in terms of Matt's influence on sequencing, that was kind of our, our bit. I remember doing it in the garden, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, it made sense. Like, I think we worked chronologically in terms of, what, like, when we write the songs as well. Yeah. Like, Disco Volador theme was the last one we wrote. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything that was, like, really out there that didn't make the cut for the album, where you thought, actually, we like this, but we can't find a spot for it? Uh, we actually one night recorded like a really weird kind of free jazz like yeah two two of those right? yeah yeah one of them was called we're all excited for our existential crisis and hmm. this one was called spread the dread spread the dread yeah because yeah. <laughs> um, we got we got like really drunk didn't we and set up everything in the library yeah i think henry <laughs> was playing like a guitar with a sitar bridge yeah. Marta was playing the moon uh, we had the engineer Joel playing guitar and then me and Sid on bass and drums. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we like, recorded that live and then went into the control room and then just with the talk back mic like spoke over it and did like the spoken word thing. Um, they kind of got dubbed the tequila jam. <laughs> we tried thing. to like jokingly show it to Jeff, the label boss uh during the like album playback thing and he wasn't he wasn't yeah, he didn't like it that much. <laughs> um yeah i guess it was yeah pretty interesting as well actually because material mistake we wrote in the studio yeah uh we always like to go into the studio with kind of a bit of room for jamming and seeing what happens in the moment 
and yeah material mistakes is what came out of that yeah. session um which so, yeah. is interesting because it's probably probably the most telling step of where we're heading next yeah. with the stuff mm. Mm. i think it's it's because we always do we kind of work very fast and then there'll be like a, a bit mid-session where we actually have time to do the writing and buy by that point we already know what some of this complete songs sound like so we can then write a song we kind of write it in to the album so it sounds like it's a co yeah. coherent thing and then obviously like if if something happens or is written in the studio that is us usually trying to figure out what we're going to do in the future because it's obviously like the most up-to-date thing mm -hmm. and that's all that's us just kind of trying to map it out a bit. Mm. And kind of lyrically, you know, I mentioned earlier, I wanted to kind of get into some of the lyrics and Esme, I imagine you write most, if not all of the lyrics yeah. for the songs. Like it's like you've created kind of your own world with some of this stuff, you know, particularly the, in this one, it's all about space travel. There's mentioned things like dynamic goo, whatever that is, you know, alternate dimensions. Like how did you, how did you kind of settle on that as, as a theme for this album? And where, where, where do you get inspiration for things like Seventh Dynamic Goo? Which I still don't know what it is, right? And you probably won't tell me. Again, yeah, I think it was just more all these coincidences coming together. And like, like I often find when I'm like reading something, I find a certain theme and names start recurring throughout different texts I'm reading. <laughs> Mister, right now, the cat, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Lisa is about this lovely little cat which is meowing, She's meowing like <laughs> um but yeah it's kind of all these recurring names and themes and stuff and then I get lost on a bit of train of thought and um yeah I kind of do end up creating my own world within that do you want to tell me what seventh dynamic goo is yeah so seventh dynamic goo was from a book on phenomenology that I was reading at the time which goes like into a kind of a lot of like Scientology sort of hectic pseudoscience sort of theories, but that was just yeah something that I saw and then straight away I was like, oh, seven dynamic goo sounds like a song title definitely. So try to write a song about that. It's yeah. about being abducted by aliens and apparently the seventh dynamic goo when you get dragged into it. <laughs> it's the uh, thing that kind of stops you from like being conscious and dragging yourself back out of this abduction all right yeah there's a lot of those kind of yeah, tv like programs on sky isn't there where you see people who claim they've been abducted and stuff that's what you're almost making me this sounds like one of them telling you about being abducted right <laughs> yeah but i mean yeah it's very like our interpretation of these ideas so it's kind of my hope that other people interpret them in whatever way they want as well yeah. And you also kind of return to different, it's a similar themes. In fact, some of the same words. I noticed that thrift store cowboys line is yeah. on your debut album and it's on this album as well. Is that something that's going to be a recurring theme throughout? Like, is, is album three and four and five? Are you going to kind of slip that in there as a bit of like an Easter egg? Yeah, I think, well, that idea revolved around we when we were first writing uh, Dogtooth, we wanted to come up with a chant towards the end of the thing as like a little ode to ESG, that kind of thing. And um, we just basically were like, what's good for like syllables and kind of like, you know, a monotonous thing to chant that doesn't really make any sense as well. So mm. 
that was how that was birthed and then we were just like yeah let's bring it into like yeah. every song where we want to chant something but we don't really know yeah. what to say i think these these motifs uh like fresh up cowboys we we quite like it when bands do that they have like things that string along the the mm-hmm. discography and stuff yeah. um so i think yeah uh, it's become its own entity like a lot of the things that we do with the band they kind of it takes a life of its own eventually mm-hmm. uh. and i'd say one of my favorite songs on the album is whilst the flowers look um and that one almost to me has it's maybe gone a little bit away from the space vibe and it's a it feels like it's got a more serious subject matter to it than than the escapism elsewhere on the album but i can't find the lyrics anywhere and again i've spent six months trying to figure out what it's what it's about so could you could you tell us yeah they're probably my favorite lyrics because we wrote this song i think it was one of the songs where we all like most naturally felt it (laughs) (laughs) that's a cat (laughs) listeners you'll notice you heard a cat then the cat's not in the band the cat just happens to be wandering uh past the uh past the screen (laughs) yeah it came together so naturally that song when we first we jamming it it felt so so emotional it came very naturally yeah. in the, in, um, in our practice room facts where we were at the time. Um, I think just because it was such an emotional song when we were jamming it and playing it, it was a time when we all really needed to give ourselves a bit of like self-help kind of thing. So the lyrics are just a bit of like a bit of that really, but was turning to loads of different themes for that and uh, watched the film Buena Vista Social Club by Win Win Wenders and um there's a song from that that basically sings in Spanish, something like, when the flowers see me cry and they'll die. So that's where Whilst the Flowers Up came from. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, basically on that thread of thought. I think for for me, that's one of my favourites because um, I came up with the, the chord patterns at, at home and I was trying to play with something where it was quite sad and serious at first and then using like the chord pedal tones, it becomes happy but the the chords are like very familiar but the new and optimistic and you know i felt this emotion when uh, i showed it to the band and i was like close your eyes and then play the played the bit to like help invoke that emotion and then when we went to demo it and as sung the lyrics for the first time she couldn't have nailed what i was feeling when i wrote it um mm-hmm. it's like perfect if there's a song its lyrical content matches its the music behind it then it's a per, it's in my view it's perfect and i think that's one of the songs where we managed to do that mm-hmm. yeah i think what's even strange about it for me is i remember when i first heard it and i was on i live in a semi-rural part of kent i've just gone for this kind of long walk and now whenever i go for that walk again i can't not think of that song it's a very summery sounding song yeah. i mean i think i think you still listen to it in the winter but i think it's one of those where if you walk in through a meadow and it's 30 degrees right that's 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 to me what that evokes yeah wow that's beautiful yeah that that definitely obviously relates to the point of it's social club thing when we watched yeah. that it was like so poignant that that line of being like yeah i'm walking through this meadow and no one can see me crying but the flowers and yeah it's kind of yeah such a, a beautiful lyric and yeah loads of it was written as well with like because I used to collect like for Silver Dollar moment especially I had like a journal collected of just different 
kind of thoughts and sentences from like friends and people when I was out or just like anything I'd think of and I'd just quickly write down and I guess with it being on this idea of like helping others and using each other's like you know strengths and weaknesses together to like create this sort of song which kind of acts as like a bit of an a bit of advice in a way mm. so it's stringing together all these like different uh incoherent thoughts into like one collective mindset mm. And I think as well, you know, in some of the reviews I've read of, of you know, of Disco Volador, it's kind of almost question whether you're taking the piss a little bit and messing around. And, and I guess there is an element of fun to what you do. But I think if you listen to this, then that tells you that actually, no, you are taking what you do seriously. Yes, you're doing there's some far out themes in what you're writing about, but there is uh, there is a kind of real heart to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. Man. I've not read those reviews. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's definitely, it's there within everything, like, it's just different ways of exploring it, like, I guess, um, so much, like, soul music or whatever that I listen to that's great, where it's just singing about, like, you know, loving someone, but I guess with the type of music we do, it doesn't lend ourselves to being that simplistic in the lyrics, in a way, mm. um, that's mm. a bad thing, but I just never felt like that would be a natural fit. Yeah. I think just taking a step back a little bit from from the album as well and thinking about, you know, you couldn't have planned that it would be released, you know, literally weeks before we would go into kind of lockdown. But I'm sure I did read something that one of you had said about how it almost feels poignant that it that it did, given it's about um, sort of almost like facing an existential crisis. And then the biggest existential crisis that, you know, <laughs> our generation face kind of landed. So... How, how how do you feel about almost the the serendipity of of when it came out and what it was about and then obviously what came afterwards? It's weird because like on reflection, it definitely felt really really foreshadowed. Like really, when we were in the studio, it felt quite foreboding. Like writing these lyrics and being like, oh, like how ah, these are these existential crises we're like reading in the news each day. But little did we know at the time. Obviously, it was this snowball effect of like everything that kind of like has led to this lockdown moment now and yeah. yeah it does seem like quite a suitable record to have out this year as unfortunate as it is yeah like, I, I remember when I can't remember what song we were tracking but the reason we mentioned earlier that jam spread the dread this this came about because we were we'd like do a take and then we'd go down and then Joel would uh, the engineer would read out a really terrible news headline about something going something bad happening in the world but then um, like he kept doing it and this like feeling of existential dread kind of um i don't know it like helped to it's it yeah and i guess with like the whole way we wrote the music which was so like about tension and release and tense moments and stuff it just our own like anxieties, I suppose, played into the way we played the music. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I was trying to say. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that probably brings us kind of round to the now. So you couldn't have planned the the kind of world it would land into, but obviously, what's happened now must have had some influence on your sound and the six months, seven, eight months we've had, whatever it's been um, in in lockdown. So, what, what I guess, what can we expect from your next record, based on? based on the world that Disco Volador's kind of been thrust into? I guess with us having a lot of time to reflect on our own and like other 
things we're working on at the moment which we kind of haven't yet been able to speak about but um kind of cinematic influences and different ways of experiencing live performance and stuff um i think basically it's just going to take more an artistic turn if possible but also stay a bit more relevant to the fact that like we are in a time now where like things are quite shit without sounding depressing like you know it's definitely got that mood i think that will come through yeah Yeah. i think a lot of the stuff we've been writing and what we was was quite impulsive uh by nature and what we've discussed is kind of not having things be as live as possible to get the every like little uh expression we put in having not things not as uh oh, it's really hard to explain like what the process for being for recording in the past was like for, for me anyway more spontaneous yeah more spontaneous and like felt kind of like uh, these jazz crowd numbers well, you've been playing like, yeah. a lot mm. whereas like, the process before for me was like i'd sit down and record like every verse and then every chorus overdub it separately and i think that it takes it away it takes it so far away from being like what it once was when we were playing it. i think it's about taking a step back from that and yeah having having things more linear than what the fuck they are now yeah <laughs> <laughs> and have you written much of it yet have you started demoing like where 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 do you think it will start to land yeah we've started demoing yeah we've started writing and demoing it and we've got something coming out early next year not a new record but kind of a new uh conceptual version of disco balls that's kind of a sneak preview but yeah yeah we kind of started when we got the idea to do this film extended uh cinema with the this the album done live uh and what came from that is we wanted to sequence the songs and then have transitions where we wouldn't really stop playing like the 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 music wouldn't so in that we got the opportunity to play around with re-existing songs and rework them and then i think it that's really where it started yeah and then playing with um, a bit of like drum processing in the studio and we were finding all these little little tricks we can we want to like do more of yeah i guess with like the freedom of rewriting this disco volador record um to you know fit it to the structure of like a film mm. just discovered that like this is the kind of music we almost want to make a little bit more down this path so yeah, yeah. But that's a really interesting approach actually you know you're saying you've written some new stuff but actually you think disco volador still got there's more life in it there's there's a whole world you can start to build around it that it's it doesn't just exist as a as a 10 track album it's it can be something bigger and conceptual so that's really interesting so you're saying you're turning it into a film yeah uh, yeah it's kind of a well this is the scoop anyway because <laughs> we haven't been asked about this yet but um we are doing it as like an expanded cinema kind of in, influenced session because obviously there's a, like a, such a demand now for doing live sessions and that kind of thing but we wanted to develop this further into something that like we could really get stuck into creatively and um yeah we've been working with loads of artists for the past few months and are going to have uh, hopefully have a record 
with the live versions of this new cinema adapted um, disco volador, and then yeah, a film to go with it early yeah. next year. Whether whether music is concerned, and with us rewriting, <clears throat> we we had to do it by like on purpose this time with these songs, whereas before uh, the way it goes is we play songs live. You know, we, we jam in soundtracks and we jam in, in practices. And what happens is these songs change the form, new parts get added that are the live only versions. Which, ha what happened with like most of the songs we played off Silver Dollar Moment, they, they, they change like after a year. It's different from the recorded version. And this would have naturally happened with Disco Volador, but instead we had to do it on purpose because we mm. songs you know, they change all the time. And, we like play them slightly differently as the more times we, we play and we have to do it on purpose. Yeah. But I think, yeah, for, start doing scoring for film with the intention of it being like the soundtrack is, is definitely a big inspiration for the next one. Well, I can't wait to hear, see, experience that. But I think just before I, I kind of let you go, because I know uh, you've had a takeaway delivered and you've got a, a cat who's vying for your attention, I guess I just wanted to give a nod to your gig at the Trades Club, Hebden Bridge, which will be a few days after we release this uh, podcast, so you've still got time to go and get a, a virtual ticket. And yeah, what, what can fans expect to see from, from that gig? Yeah, we're going to tease a little bit of what we recorded, this other version of Disco Volador that we recorded. Um, so kind of make it a more like coercive piece without stops and kind of like... Yeah, we've got ambient jams in between like each song, so we're going to do a little bit of that and then just all the bangers, basically. Yeah. Been, we've had a lot of Twitter requests for Sugar Taste Like Soul already. So we're bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, bring it back. Um, uh, yeah, we're just going to have fun with it, basically. And obviously, yeah, Trades is one of our, if not our favourite venue um, in the UK, so... We're happy to be back there, such close to Christmas. Yeah. Perfect. We're really looking forward to tuning into the gig. Uh, and yeah, you should come back on the show when when you've kind of done this Disco Volador kind of 2.0. It'd be great to kind of, kind of get into depth in it even more. For now, I feel like we're only just kind of really beginning with that. Otherwise, thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. Enjoy the takeaway. Give the cats some attention. And yeah, we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So that was a different kind of interview than you've ever done before for demo tapes, I think, Rick. And like you said earlier on in the show, you, you wanted to do this to get a better understanding of some of their influences and some of the, the, the lyrics and themes of the album. So did you find out everything you wanted to know? I mean, probably not absolutely everything, because it's one of those albums you could probably spend a whole week talking to them about and still not fully understanding. But yes, I think I did walk away with um definitely a better understanding of some of the influences so my favorite song is whilst the flowers look and they explain that actually that was about something that's in the buena vista social club film which i've never actually seen i know it's one of those cool films and it's on the list of cool films i should have seen um i never would have picked that out i never would have understood that the lyrics were kind of about that and you know they explained it was um you know about when you feel you're sort of walking through a field you're feeling pretty glum and it's only the flowers that can see you crying and i think at that point in the interview they were getting quite emotional talking about it probably as was I because I'm you know that, that that's probably the song that cuts 
kind of the deepest with me with my kind of um my 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 lockdown malaise should we say back in kind of march april but yeah um did i find out everything i wanted to know probably not yet but that's that's probably the genius of this album really you've just real made me realize something when you're talking about um their film influences i bet they have got some amazing film recommendations i wonder if we can get those from them as well it's a bit of an add-on for, for people when we're promoting this um because i think they you know they're, they're obviously very i hate the word cool but they are <laughs> they're kind of you know it's very i bet they've got some really good art house movie recommendations that I'd love to get off them. Um, but you, they talked about rather than going straight to a third album, they're going to build something a bit more cinematic and uh, conceptual around the Disco Volador album, which they're going to release next year is, you know, something that they've said was directly as a result of COVID, right? So COVID has kind of changed and shaped the music industry. But I guess bands building albums um, around a concept is becoming a bit of a running theme, isn't it? Because Tom talked about this around the Chronicles of Nigel. So what did you think about that? sounded really interesting actually and i do think it's one of those albums that would lend itself to something a little bit more cinematic there is a loose story that runs through the album around you know time travel and space and and all that kind of stuff so i can really see this really see this working and maybe that when they produce that a lot of what they're talking about will make a lot more sense i do think you know as i said to esme the singer and lyricist she's kind of built her own world and i think largely they they are the only ones who live in that world at the moment I wouldn't say they did it because of COVID. I think because of it's more because the current situation has meant bands have had to find different ways to not just gig and do virtual gigs and stuff, but I guess to build art. And I think they're looking at it and thinking, well, actually, if we can't have fans on a tour early next year, why not build something that they can experience virtually, but that adds something to the album? It's not just us playing playing the songs live virtually to you, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time and a good time, actually, and a creative time for the music industry. As much as the government wants everyone to retrain and not, you know, not be musicians anymore and become scientists or whatever they want people to become, um, I think people are it's actually going to go the opposite way. And I think there's going to be more creativity and more art created as a result of this. I think we're we're in for an interesting year in the music industry next year, I think, with things like things that are going on like this. But in talk, you know, talking about virtual gigs, you wanted to talk about their gig on Saturday, didn't you? Yeah, so I guess just as a reminder, we might have mentioned it a couple of times. If you want to hear the Orioles play uh, the Disco Volador album, they said they're going to add some new material in there as well. So if you're a fan, it's definitely worth a watch. They are streaming a live gig from the Hebden Bridge Trades Club this Saturday, 5th of December. If you're hearing this a few weeks later, sorry, the gig's already happened and I don't think they're streaming it on demand, so you've missed it. But if you catch this episode as soon as it drops, you'll still have time to go and buy tickets. I'll definitely be doing that and uh, recommend fans of the band, or even if you've never heard them before, with our Bunga Band Bob campaign in mind, why not chuck them 10, 11 quid, whatever it is, and, and sort of discover a new band or you know, kind of hear what they're up to? Sounds good. But we also want to hear from you on whether you've attended any virtual gigs, do you have any recommendations that we can talk about in upcoming uh, episodes? And how did you find them if you did find them? So you can get in touch with us, the usual channels. We are at Pod on Instagram and Twitter, or our email address is demotapespod at gmail.com. And also, if you want to join our Bunga Band of Bob campaign as we figure out exactly how this is going to play out, get in touch. We want to build a database, an army of people who want to support uh, the bands they love so please please do get in touch if you're keen to get involved otherwise uh, i guess that's all we've got time for on this episode so all that's left to say is uh, yeah see you on the next episode stay safe <laughs> <laughs>
See ya.